Right now, it's my privilege to introduce David Clark. David is our guest speaker today. He is a professor of theology and apologetics at Bethel Seminary, which is what Greg used to teach at Bethel College. David's been a friend of Woodland Hills for a long time, and please welcome him. Thank you. Well, it's good to be here this morning, and welcome to all of you, and thank you for wonderful worship this morning. I do have a family as well. Sandy is my wife, and we have two sons, Ryan and Tyler. And, of course, every summer we do take a family vacation. A couple of years ago we went on a vacation out east to Ontario where we have some relatives who have a a cottage. Now, for some odd reason, in Minnesota we call this a, a cabin, and in Ontario they call it a college. I don't know why it's a cottage, but anyway, there it is. And we would travel uh, in our minivan out to Ontario to visit our family. Now, we're sort of the, the typical soccer family because both our boys, boys play soccer. And more, more recently, they picked up lacrosse. They run around hitting people with sticks. Go figure. I don't know. It's a game, you know. But anyway, soccer family, and Sandy's a soccer mom, and we've got the minivan. And this particular summer, we had a kayak upside down on the roof. So we're headed off to Ontario. It's 1,000 miles, and so we drive through the night and trade off drivers and so forth, and it works out really well. Well, at about 5 o'clock in the morning, I'm driving along. It's my shift, and uh, it was time for a rest stop. So I pulled into a Tim Hortons, and I parked the car in in a parking slot there right in front of Tim Hortons, and I very, very carefully and quietly turned everything off. You know how you have to do everything in sequence or all this annoying buzzer will go off, you know. So I turned off the lights and I turned off the motor and I pulled out my keys and I adjusted my everything and then opened the door and no sound and I listened and everyone kept sleeping. See, if I could keep them sleeping for another three hours, the trip would go faster, you see. So I was very quiet. And I went in, used the restroom, came back out, and I now did the thing in reverse. You see, I very carefully opened the door. No one stirred. And I very carefully stepped into my seat and closed the door, got the engine started. Everybody's still sleeping. It was wonderful. And I started down the track, and sure enough, everyone stayed asleep, and it was just great. Well, half an hour later, I decided, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning, 5.30 is kind of boring. Maybe I'll listen to a cassette tape. I could turn it down low and listen, you know. So I, pu- I, I had some tapes along of this guy named Greg Boyd. I don't know if you've ever heard him, but... I thought maybe that'd keep me awake at 5.30 in the morning, you know. So I reached down behind me in uh, this little bag I had and pulled out this tape. And Now, I need to tell you that Sandy was sitting directly behind me in the captain's chair, you see. And, of course, her legs should have been right there next to that bag. As I reached for that cassette tape, all of a sudden I realized no legs. No wife. I had left my wife at Tim Hortons. Now, I need to tell you that we have some friends, the Thompsons. They have four children. They have left these children multiple times at multiple sites all around the state of Minnesota. In fact, the DNR has put together a list of all the rest stops where the Thompsons have not left a child. It's a very short list. And, of course, I had this great sense of contempt in my heart for these people. I'm thinking, well, they're my friends, but why in the world are you leaving your children scattered all over the place? I mean, come on, this is such a simple thing, you know. All of a sudden, I realized the Lord was 
knocking me down a peg, you know, pride and humility. That's another sermon another day. But wow, did I get it between the eyes. So immediately I zipped off the freeway over the bridge and I'm going back as fast as I possibly can. About 10 minutes back, all of a sudden, my older son, Tyler, stirs in the back. Dad, Yatai, where's mom? <laughs> um, I left her back at the Tim Hortons. We're going back to get her. Oh, you are in trouble. <laughs> but don't worry. We'll think of something. We'll work together. We'll come up with a plan. I know we can solve this problem, Dad. I'm with you all the way. Nope, I can't think of a thing. You're on your own. And with that, he promptly fell fast asleep. College students can do this. While I'm driving as fast as I can, I see a patrol car going the other way. And I'm thinking, oh, boy. So I zipped as quickly as I could, got back, pulled into Tim Horton's, and there's my wife laughing. And I'm thinking to myself, if it were me, you know, <laughs> I don't know that laughter would be the response. I mean, my wife is a lot more gracious than me, but still. Well, it turned out, you see, that the particular fact that she had been left behind was actually, in her own mind, part of a bigger story. For as I was tooling down the freeway, she was calling the operator at 911 and making fast friends. They became actually lifelong friends in this time. She said, um, I'm sorry to say this, but there is a minivan with a kayak on top heading east. And uh, it's got my family. I've been left behind at Tim Hortons. I know this never happens, and I'm really sorry, but could you get these people, you know, could you get your patrol people to stop this, this van? The operator says, don't worry, ma'am. It happens all the time. <laughs> Well, I felt a little better there. So then <clears throat> the patrolman who was coming the other way spotted the kayak and radios back. They're on their way. Okay, don't worry. They've figured it out. They're coming back to get you. Sandy had this information. This is part of the bigger picture, part of the bigger story. And so as the 911 operator is signing off and they're chatting and telling a little childhood stories and whatnot, they became very good friends in this time. Um, the 911 operator said, well, one final thing, ma'am, that I need to tell you. You know that husband of yours? You need to let him ride the rest of the trip in that kayak. <laughs> well, <clears throat> life's crises. We all run into them, don't we? And as we make the journey of life, we hit these issues, and we focus in on the facts of the crises and the problems and the difficulties we face. And sometimes we need more information, a bigger picture, in order to make sense out of and in order to respond well to the specific events that happen in our lives. Sandy had that more information. She knew we were coming back. And that's exactly parallel to something that I'd like to talk with you about this morning, which is wisdom for life's journey. Now, the key to wisdom, according to the Bible, is fearing God. Wisdom starts with fearing God. There's a well-known verse in Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This concept that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is the theme of the book of Proverbs. Actually, it's more than that. It's not just the book of Proverbs, but this whole middle chunk of the Bible. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, a whole big section in the middle. Wisdom is a critical and central theme. 
the person who exhibits wisdom in his or her life, not just on Sunday morning when you're hearing an inspiring message or listening to great and participating in great worship, but on Wednesday afternoon when the kid's sick and throwing up. So even then, the person who exercises wisdom, even on Wednesday afternoon, is the hero of the book of Proverbs. Over a hundred times this person is lifted up as a model for us. Now the fear of the Lord is not the kind of fear that's scared fear. It's not like fear factor. You know, it's not, not the kind of fear you experience when you're lying on your back and there are tarantulas crawling all over your face and a TV camera is zooming in on you for a reality TV show. It's not that kind of thing. The fear of God is something quite different like that, than that. It's much more like respect, much more like awe and love. It's much more like relating to a beloved coach or a respected teacher, or a music director that you really care about, or even in the military, a commanding officer who has your uh, undying devotion. You know, there are some officers in the military that, that men will die for, and other officers that, that soldiers despise. I'm talking about the kind of officer who leads the troops, but also loves the troops. This kind of a coach, this kind of a teacher, this kind of an officer is the kind of person who will challenge us to do our very best, who will hold us accountable, who will lift us to our uh, most highest achievements. It's the kind of person who will hold us accountable, but also love us and root for us at the same time. It's this kind of awe and loving respect that the Bible is talking about when it talks about the fear of the Lord. So it's not an, a, a kind of scared fear but something quite, more, quite a bit more than that, a respectful, loving relationship. And here's a key issue, that fear includes seeing all of life from God's point of view. Fearing God means seeing all the specific individual events of life from God's point of view. Proverbs 8.13 says this, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. So this kind of fear has a moral dimension. There's, it's good and not evil. Fearing God brings life rather than death. In fact, the fear of the Lord is part of the very definition of spiritual life. Proverbs 10:27, the fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Actually, there's empirical evidence that if you fear the Lord and follow the Lord, it will actually improve your health. That's not why we do it. But it does have this positive effect, because this is how we were made. Proverbs 14.26, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. So the kind of fear we're talking about here is a complex thing that has to do with experiencing God's passionate care, taking God seriously and giving God his due, loving God with every fiber of energy in our bodies and beings, putting God in his proper place, as the king of the universe, bringing every experience of life under God's watchful eye, sharing a delightful moment with God, and viewing all of life in the perspective of God's love, holiness, and joy. So, fearing God, that's where wisdom begins. Now, in the Bible, wisdom is always the opposite of foolishness. Wisdom is always the opposite of foolishness. And Proverbs 1, verse 7 goes on. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, 
but fools despise knowledge and discipline. So wisdom and foolishness are opposites. Foolishness is taking something of incredible value and giving it away for something that's virtually worthless. A fool is a one who acts on a short-term view rather than a long-term view. A one who acts with a narrow perspective rather than a broad perspective. Now we need to clarify one thing because there are times in the Bible where we are encouraged to reject wisdom and to choose faith. What's that about? What does it mean when we are to not follow wisdom, but instead to follow the Lord? Well, it turns out that there are several times when the Bible talks about worldly wisdom, which is really a so-called alleged wisdom, not true wisdom, but worldly wisdom, which is set in contrast to the wisdom of God. Worldly wisdom, which has to do with the information and the data of this life, is equivalent to foolishness, and it's always in opposition to following the wisdom of God. There are some classic biblical examples of foolishness. One of them goes back to Genesis 25. In Genesis 25, we have the story of Esau, and you remember that Esau was willing to trade his whole inheritance, something that would have set him up for life, in exchange for a pot of lentil stew. Now, lentil stew is a good thing, you know. It's very healthy. If you go to the good earth, you can get some lentil stew. It's good stuff. If you're a vegetarian, you might eat it a lot. But it's not worth a whole inheritance. Or in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 7, we have the words of Jesus where he says, again, very well-known line, that the wise man builds his house on the rock. The fool builds his house on the sand. My extended family comes from eastern Long Island. This is a, an island that sticks out into the Atlantic Ocean from New York City. Actually, the western tip of Long Island is part of New York City. And my dad and his extended family grew up on the eastern end of Long Island. They lived quite near the ocean, and there were big sand dunes and a beach, and it's a wonderful place to be in the summer. And so people from New York City would come out and visit in the summer. And when you're there in the summer, you think, wow, what a place. This is fabulous. We had to build a summer home right here on the sand dune. You know, and the waves are lallygagging in. It's just a delightful place. And so people who are there in the summer think, aha, let's build a house here. This is great. And they do. And then, of course, November comes. And everyone knows that in the North Atlantic in November, these huge storms come. And the storms would come. And Dad told me stories as I was a kid about these storms coming in, pulling out the sand in these mansions, falling into the ocean. Obviously, a fool to spend that kind of money on a place that will not last. Foolishness is taking what is of infinite value and trading it in a short-term view for something that's worthless. Proverbs 21.30 says, There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. So, to avoid foolishness, fear God. Now I want to unpack a little bit the inner workings of wisdom. How does wisdom work from the inside? And we're going to focus on one dimension or one feature of wisdom, one aspect of wisdom. I want to start with a little thought experiment, okay? little thought experiment here. Bare data, raw facts are meaningless. 
Now, that might surprise you. Maybe some of you remember Dragnet. You know, just give me the facts, ma'am, just the facts. You know, facts are it, right? But actually, facts by themselves are meaningless. I'd like to show that to you by doing a little experiment. After every class that I teach at the seminary, the students do an evaluation. Usually, I try to fill out the evaluations, but since I teach ethics, that doesn't go over real well. So the students fill out the evaluations. And um, let's suppose at the end of a particular class that all the tabulations are made, and it comes out that my teaching was evaluated at a 9.2. What do you think? <laughs> Wise guy in the front row says, out of 100. Yeah. And that's the problem, isn't it? 9.2 what? Right? 9.2 doesn't tell you anything unless you know that it's a 10-point scale and not a 100-point scale. Right? You need the bigger picture in order for the fact to make any sense. Well, what else do you need to know? What if 10 is bad and 0 is good? You know, like golf, low score wins, and I get a 9.2. Well, again, you see, the fact suddenly has an opposite meaning, doesn't it? What else do we have to know? We have to know what are we being evaluated on? Is it the wardrobe? Well, that's irrelevant to teaching effectiveness, isn't it? So how do we make sense out of this evaluation 9.2? And the fact is we need more context. We need a bigger picture. We need a deeper truth. You see, bare data always need a bigger picture. The specific events that happen in my life don't mean anything unless I have a clue of what the bigger picture of God's plan and purposes are all about. Do you understand? The specific events, good, bad, or indifferent, that happen in my life need this bigger picture. For example, I looked this up on the Internet. <laughs> I'm very techno. I won't go into that. Anyway, I know how to use the Internet. <laughs> and I looked this up. And here's what I found. Kirby Puckett had a failure rate of 68.2%. What a dud! Except, of course, we all know, don't we, that in that particular activity, a 318 lifetime batting average is actually very good. Anything over 300 is outstanding. So we need context. Now, to get at this, let's use another example, a sort of visual example to help us get a handle uh, on this idea that the facts and the events and the experiences of our lives need a bigger picture. For example, let's take this idea that the FBI is here. Let's suppose somebody announces, the FBI is here. Good news or bad news? What if it turns out that the bigger picture here is that my life savings have been stolen. The FBI is here. Good news. Somebody's going to help me recover, hopefully, my life savings, all $14. <laughs> but what if the bigger picture is a little different? What if it turns out that I'm the president of WorldCom? <laughs> the FBI is here. Okay. See, <laughs> the fact 
by itself isn't the key thing, really, is it? The microscopic view doesn't tell you what you need to know. What you need to know is the bigger truth, the bigger picture. And that's exactly what wisdom dictates for us. We have to take the specific events and facts of our lives and put them into a bigger picture, or else we'll miss the boat. And notice, if the bigger picture is missing, and I put more facts and more details and more specifics on the inside of this inner circle, where does that get me? You know, our society and our culture is great with details and information and data and computers and Internet. We've got more information. We're just choking in information. We're drinking from a fire hose with information. But information doesn't constitute wisdom unless you understand the bigger picture of what God is all about in our universe. So wisdom requires, then, putting the data of my life into the big picture of God's purposes. See, wisdom dictates that I take the specific events of my life and put them into the bigger story of God's plan. Let's take another example. Let's suppose the doctor says to me that I'm deathly sick. That's a fact. That's a specific. That's an event. That's something that's happened to me, let's say. All right? And let's say that I think the bigger story of life is no God. And let's suppose I'm thinking that the best thing I should do is to grab all the gusto I can as I go along in life. What does that do to this fact of my life? However, what if I have understood instead God's wisdom, and let's say I, say I choose to believe the truth that God exists, and that God has a plan and a purpose which he is working out, as he interacts with us through history. What if that is the bigger reality, the bigger story, the bigger truth about the universe? Then the fact that I have an illness fits into something that is bigger, and I can trust in that. Several years ago, the son who wouldn't help me on my trip, <clears throat> I have forgiven him, <laughs> was about three years old, and we sent him off to VBS. Now, you know how it is when parents send their kids off to kindergarten or for VBS or whatever for the very first time. It's just, a, you know, the parents are so excited. So we sent him off to VBS. And when he came home, we wanted to know all about it. You know, how did it go? Did you meet new friends? Did you have a good time? Uh, did they have punch and cookies? Did you discuss the doctrine of the Trinity? You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> Being the child of a professor is just, you know, it's really a burden to bear. Anyway... And we wanted to know, who was your teacher? You know, was it Vicky? Now, Vicky was this high school girl, about six foot tall, very long legs, volleyball player, uh, style of body. You know, she was just real tall and, and very sweet and a great person. And we thought it might be Vicky. We wanted to know if it was Vicky. So, was it Vicky? He didn't know. Well, was your teacher wearing a pink blouse? See, we noticed that Vicky was wearing a pink blouse. He didn't know. So he said, well, Tyler, do you remember what she was wearing then? And he thought for a moment and he said, she was wearing blue shorts and long brown legs. 
from his perspective, see, that's what she was wearing. And the point here is that perspective makes all the difference in finding wisdom for our lives. Perspective makes all the difference in finding wisdom for our lives. Now, to get at this through the scripture, I'd like to turn to a passage in 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. And here we're going to find a story about a fellow named Elisha whose servant discovers wisdom. This is an interesting story because it's full of surprises and full of ironies and full of reversals. It happened about 3,000 years ago in the 9th century B.C., and this was a time when there was a group of people called the Arameans from Aram. And the Arameans were doing border raids, and they were attacking camels and camel caravans and so forth. And they were sort of just being a pain in the neck for the Israelites at this time. So this is the setting. Okay? Now the king of Aram, it says in verse 6, was at war with Israel. And he would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately... Elijah, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel, do not go near the place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God, warning the people there to be on their guard. This happened several times. The king of Aram became very upset about this. He called in his officers and demanded, which of you is the traitor? Who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans? Now, it's always a pain when the other team has a spy in your huddle, right? I mean, even the Vikings could win the Super Bowl under those circumstances, for Pete's sake. And so what an advantage to have a player, you know, knowing exactly what play you're going to run on every single play. So, obviously, the king is upset. In fact, according to the, the text here, the Hebrew word is kind of interesting. What it indicates that the, that the king of Aram is stomping about. He was storming about. He was just hopping mad. It kind of reminds me of the movies. You know, when, whenever you see in the movies there's a plate glass window and a large bookcase of glass shelves and a lot of crystal on those glass shelves, I mean, you just know this is a setup, right? What's going to happen? Somebody's going to grab a large, heavy object and throw it through all that glass for visual effect. I mean, you just know it's coming, right? Well, that's kind of what's going on here. I mean, he just is dying to throw something through a plate glass window. He is so stomping mad. He's a bull in a china shop, just really angry. All right. The officers, are you going to respond now to this, this uh, accusation in this situation? Well, here's what it says, verse 12. It's not us, my lord, one of the officers replies. Elisha. This is so typical, isn't it, human nature? Not me, you know, Elisha. He's the guy. Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your own bedroom. So the king commanded, go and find where Elisha is, and we will send troops to seize him. And the report came back. Elisha is in Dothan. Dothan is a city. So one night... The king of Aram sends a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city of Dothan. Now let's just pause here for one second. Why are we doing this at night? Because it needs to be a secret to keep our enemies from knowing what we're doing, right? 
And why are we angry with Elisha? Because he always has advanced knowledge of what we're doing, right? So here we are trying to capture the guy who knows what I'm going to do, but we're doing it at night so we won't know what we're doing. This king is a little bit short. You know, the elevator did not make it to the top floor. Uh, maybe a few carats short of a Baptist casserole or something like that. But anyway, the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and goes outside, and there are troops and horses and chariots everywhere. So this is Elisha's servant now, wondering, whoa, what's this all about? Oh, my Lord, he cries out to Elisha, what will we do now? Fear not, Elisha says to him. And then here comes the first surprise, the first uh, reversal. There are more on our side than there are on that side. Now, an interesting statement here. Fear not. Do not be afraid. You see, this is kind of like a signal throughout the Bible that God is going to bring an announcement, an announcement that has to do with salvation. It starts in Genesis. This kind of thing happens. And it goes all the way through when you get to the birth narratives at Christmas. When the angel comes to Joseph and to Mary, what's the first thing the angel says? Fear not. See, there's a, this is like an announcement is coming. Attention came our choppers. You see, something important is about to be said. Well, I guess that's not quite analogous. But in the Bible, fear not. There's an announcement of salvation. And so, Elisha says, there are more on our side. We're the stronger team. Verse 17. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And when the servant looked up, he saw on the hillside around, it was filled with troops and horses and chariots of fire. Fire is always a symbol of the presence of God. The children of Israel going through the desert. Do you remember this? As they would go through the desert, the children of Israel would encounter uh, a cloud of fire at night, and this is what they would follow. And so this is God's presence. The Arameans have troops and horses and chariots, but God's side has troops and horses and chariots of fire. As the Aramean army, verse 18, advanced toward them, this is Elisha and his servant now, Elisha prayed, O Lord, please make them blind. And the Lord did as Elisha asked. Here's the reversal. At first, the servant was blind, but he was able to see. The Arameans were sighted, but they were struck blind. The first shall become last. If you want to live, you must die. Top goes down and down goes top. God turns things upside down. God, the God of reversals. So then Elisha goes out and tells them, you have found the wrong place. This isn't the right city. Follow me and I will take you to the man that you're looking for. Can you see the humor and the irony in this story? And so he leads them to Samaria. Well, it turns out that Samaria is the king of Israel's capital city. In other words, he leads them directly into the jaws of their enemy. And again, they get to Samaria. Elisha prays, O Lord, open their eyes and let them see. And when the Lord does, they discover they're in the middle of Samaria. Suddenly, a second reversal, a second irony. The Arameans have come to take Elisha captive. 
through the power of the Lord, Elisha has taken the Arameans captive. Do you see? God takes the first and puts it last, and takes the last and puts it first. The God of reversals. When the king of Israel saw this, he shouted out to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Why? He couldn't believe it. His enemy had been delivered into his hand. Of course not, Elisha told him. Do we kill prisoners of war? Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So the king made a great feast for them. And they had a raucous party. And then he sent them home to their king. What a way to fight a battle. And after that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. Great reversal. First shall be last. Last shall be first. Now, why is this story here? Well, part of the story, the purpose of the story, is for God's glory to be displayed. I mean, this obviously puts the praise of the mighty God on display for all people. Another part of the purpose of the story is to show why it is that Elisha is so well known in these parts. Because a couple chapters later, he goes to Damascus, the, the capital of Syria. And when he does so, they roll out the red carpet. You would, too, if you knew what Elisha could do, right? In fact, before he even gets to the city, they send a delegation out with lots of presents. Maybe we can buy this guy off here. So it does help to explain why Elisha was so well known. But probably the most important part of this story is simply this. This story invites you and me to be the servant. This story invites us to experience what the servant experienced. You see, the servant's issue was his lack of eyesight, not a lack in the Lord's power. And that's key. It was a lack of his perception, not a lack in the Lord's presence or power. And when the servant's eyes were opened, he saw that there was a bigger story, a bigger truth that made all the difference regarding his own situation. You see, it's kind of like this. The servant experienced a fact. The fact is, we're surrounded. There's only two people on our team, and it's Elisha and me. And out there are all these troops and chariots and horses. And if his approach had been to trust in Israel's king, If that was his bigger story, then all was lost. But if it turns out that he is going to trust in the Lord, and that the bigger story, see, the, the center of the circle has stayed exactly the same, but the bigger story is that we trust the Lord and we trust the chariots of fire, then that makes all the difference. And when the servant's eyes were opened, he saw the greater truth that made all the difference. Now the question is, where are we in our own lives going to find the kind of truth we're looking for? Where are we going to find the bigger story that we need to make sense of our lives? The data of our life today, the data of our society today, is not what it needs to be. It's not good. In fact, our society is screwed up. The facts of life in our society are not positive. For we have taller buildings, but shorter tempers. We have wider freeways, but narrower viewpoints. We spend more time, but we have less. We, have, we buy more, but we enjoy less. We have more convenience, but we seem to have less time. We have more degrees and less common sense. We have more knowledge and less judgment. We have experts, 
but more problems. We drink too much and laugh too little. We eat too much and read too little. We spend too recklessly and enjoy too little. We have conquered outer space, but we haven't conquered inner space. We've done larger things, but not necessarily better things. We've cleaned up the air, but we've polluted the soul. We've conquered the atom. We have yet to conquer racial prejudice. We write more and learn less. We plan more and accomplish less. We have tall people, but small character. Fancier houses, but broken homes. More data, but less wisdom. More information, but less wisdom. We live in a society and in a culture that's long on information, but short on divine wisdom. The question then is, what truth do we find for our lives today? If our society lacks wisdom, we need a bigger story for our lives. Now, all of us have data points. All of us have facts, experiences, crises in our lives that challenge us. We have challenges. We have concerns. We have fears, both corporately and individually. But there is good news because there is a bigger story that goes around all those. God's horses and troops and chariots of fire are standing at the ready to resolve the issues that we face, the concerns and the fears. We must look to them. We must trust God to open our eyes to them so that he will be our shield and defender. And so we must be like the servant. We are invited to be like the servant, to open our eyes and to see the chariots of fire. Now, there's one more thing I want to say about this principle that we're talking about, and it is this. Does it bug you at all or worry you that you have a guest speaker this morning? Does it worry you that your shepherd's not here? Your leader has been attacked. What do you do with that? That's a fact. That's truth. That's real. It has happened. Now, human physicians have given a good report. We're good for that. We're, we're glad for that. But more ultimately, what is the bigger picture and the bigger truth and the bigger wisdom that's going to surround the fact that our leader has been attacked? Wisdom dictates that we put that concern into the circle of the power of God's presence. It is true that forces of evil align themselves against God's church. That's truth. That is a fact. It is more deeply and profoundly and mysteriously true that God is at work in our world. That God's powerful presence is the ultimate and biggest story. And so our job is to trust in the mysterious, deeper truth of God's purposes and plan. And to trust in the one, ultimately, who stands behind that truth. Wisdom dictates putting the data of your life, whether it's a financial concern, whether it's a health issue, whether it's a relational breakdown, or whatever it is that concerns you today, putting that in the larger picture of God's purposes, because he is at work in you and with you and through you. And by the way, wisdom dictates not just doing that on Sunday morning as you're listening to wonderful worship and participating in the praises of God. Wisdom dictates on doing that on Thursday afternoon when your kid is throwing up, too. Or on Tuesday morning when you get into a fender bender. 
putting the small things, these crisis moments, these difficult issues of life into the context of God's love and concern. That is what wisdom is all about. So put what concerns you today into the larger story of God's incredible wisdom and rest in that today. Be like the servant. Open your eyes. Look to the hills. There are troops and horses and chariots of fire standing ready to do God's work and purposes in your life and in the life of the body today. Trust in that today. Let's pray. If there are those who have special needs and concerns, it is the custom of this church to have people available at the front for prayer. And I invite you forward after the service for that time of prayer with the prayer team. And now, Lord, we have heard from your word today about the servant whose eyes were opened. And although we often have open eyes on Sunday, I pray, Lord, for open eyes on Wednesday and open eyes on Thursday. May we see the horses and the troops and the chariots of fire that stand around ready to do battle. We pray for our shepherd. May you sustain him and heal him by your incredible strength. And for each person here, Lord, today, I ask that your wisdom will lead them to trust in you in a way that's incredible and powerful. And now go with us in the strong name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Go, live in peace, live in wisdom. Amen.